Hello. Hey now. This is very exciting. Um, welcome to the Learning to Lose podcast. Yeah. Um, this is the first time. This yeah, we're we're trying to do a new little series here. Yeah, I'm yeah. I'm excited. I came to uh, I came to Pat the other day, and I was just talking about how, you know, I obviously don't relate on the same level of just you know, you know, sobriety and that level uh, that side of learning to lose. Obviously, because you know I'm not sober myself, but I thought it would be fun to start a new little series where it's uh, learning to lose presents two losers learning how little they know from experts. <laughs> you know, so I think that what you mean by that is like as it relates to being a police officer and the captain we, we're losers as it relates <laughs> well, to that no 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 we're just saying? we're just like we're we're wait, always, wait. we're that's, just that's that's my sponsor we're do you know who Corey is yes this is Corey. i am Corey. Uh, yeah he is Hi, Billy. the he was the police Commander, Cap commander of Hollywood. Commander sounds so medieval. Yeah. Hollywood, right? <laughs> Have you ever seen that The Pride of the Seventy Seventh? The video I did on the police precinct. That's his. He's the reason I did that. So he's like a big police officer guy. <laughs> police officer guy. <laughs> police officer guy. But like a really, a really amazing person. Like. Oh, thanks, man. I'm concluding in my 35-year career in about two weeks, Billy. Oh, wow. Just retiring after uh, a couple more weeks. I started in 1986, and I'm closing it out here at the end of February. Yeah, so he's our guest. Um, to answer your question, I no, we're just always losers. We're not losers <laughs> compared to him. But we're just losing in the fact that like we think we know a lot, but we there's so much that we don't know. And, uh, and uh, I, we're here to just learn learn from your experience and i think learning to lose is a message that goes far beyond the sobriety side of things it's just uh it's just learning from your failures and, and anybody that i know that's successful in any in in any field has failed usually more times than they've won to a certain degree it's just what do you the, the mean win. to a certain degree it, yeah. there's no certain degree you're you have to start at the bottom and yeah. And, and and you see this thing up here and it's like you're not gonna be there for a lot i mean like you know like it took you so long well for me personally i was born in a housing project i had eight <laughs> brothers and sisters my dad was a janitor i've had brothers who were homeless i remember being in a black and white probably 25 years ago and turning a corner down near venice beach and my brother was in a sleeping bag in the alley and I remember the fear and, and uh, the emotion that overwhelmed me at the time based on my brother's condition in life. Do I know yeah. that brother? No, I have eight brothers and sisters, Pat. Uh, this is one of my older brothers. I've had another brother who's been in and out of jail. He's, he's sober now, but he's been, uh, wow. the consequences he has paid uh, for his alcoholism uh, is, has cost him his life mm -hmm. um, uh, today. Li so literally or figuratively? No, he's figuratively. He's, right. He struggled his whole life with alcoholism. I have parents who both passed away uh, with significant uh, illness of intoxication of alcohol. Uh, my parents were raised uh, deeply Catholic. Uh, my dad was a janitor at the local Catholic school. I went to school there for free. Um, so I was not one to have had privilege or to have had a silver spoon. It was, uh, it was a life of failure as a child. And knowing as a child, I didn't want to live my adult life that way, certainly. And taking advantage of government services. I stood in cheese lines as a kid to get that block of Velveeta cheese so my mom right. could make sandwiches for us. Um, anytime the government had a give out during the holidays, I, we would try to be a part of that. I took advantage of student loans in school. 
I took advantage of my dad's uh, ability because he was the janitor to get a free Catholic education. So there were some uh, advantages that I took advantage of or opportunities, I should say, that led, you know, and sports was my big alternative. When my brothers uh, struggled um, with alcoholism and incarceration and, and, and uh, sports was my alternative. It was baseball that led me to kind of stay even keeled and to keep one foot in front of the other and to keep me in school, mm. which eventually led to an education and led to employment. Uh, so you were play, you played baseball. Yeah, I was a baseball pitcher. And, and you got like a, a scholarship or well, not, you just not were on the team. Yeah. Yeah. I, I played since I was a kid. I was on a bunch of all-star teams and I ended up playing uh, into college. But it led to, uh, it led to uh, you know, being on a sports team is so important, as you guys know, because it, there's a sense of responsibility. There's a sense of working with others. There's a sense, mm. there's a, you have to figure things out. Uh, the difficulties <clears throat> of, hey, why you and not me? Or what are you about? And then try to play together, as you do here at Graceland Ranch as a team. Or in a band. Yeah. I yeah. mean, honestly, I think for us, like, we were on the team, on the sports teams, but I didn't. I don't know about. Did you really want to be on the team? <laughs> not, not really. Me, me, but like me, me and Tim were like, let's start a <laughs> band, and then we started the yeah. band. But the band thing is like almost. It's the same kind of thing where you have to like be accountable and like you yeah. have to go to band practice and you don't really have like a coach. I think it's a little bit more sure. difficult in some ways. But it, it, we were creatives, so I don't think that. Like my dad just kind of forced me to do that, which is interesting because I feel like if you, I probably would have never ended up gravitating towards that. So, so when Billy comes, he's going to be, you might as well just, can you, do we need you, a, give him that, a third, Mike, third move person, that over fourth person. There? Move, move, can, just, just start talking on that. How's this? Yeah. Just in case yeah. we don't need anything. Yeah. I'm just have an open heart and open mind. Right. So right. there's got to have been some benefit, though, Pat, from that time you and your brother played ball. Your dad was a coach. You had a lot of interaction with family. Um, you had other kids in the team who were either good kids or goofballs or kids you disassociated with. But there's got to be something that led you to Tim. Or did you guys sit there in the outfield and just laugh like this is ridiculous? <laughs> I don't think we thought it was ridiculous. I mean, it's that's where you meet. It's just where you meet a lot of people in yeah. the early days, of uh -huh. course, on sports teams. I, I just think. never like I never wanted to play base. I, you know, <laughs> baseball started getting scared. I, I, to be quite honest, baseball when it when it hit like middle school. That was like a weird pocket where the pitchers got super fast, but didn't have any control. Uh -huh. So there was a weird zone where like probably by the time you get to high school, at least they have some control. And I started like literally getting kind of just scared of the ball. You just get hit all the time. Yeah. And it was like not enjoyable. And I, I used to like kind of crush it. And then my later years of baseball, I was just like praying to walk usually. <laughs> I'm actually realizing right now why I didn't like sports. I, I'm having kind of an epiphany right now. I need more control. I don't want to be one of nine. Uh -huh. I want to be like one of four. So why not like tennis for you or something? I probably would have. <laughs> I pro or golf. That yeah. probably would have been more my speed, you know, yeah. because for me waiting around on a field and then, and then getting a chance to hit two, four, I don't know, four times a game maybe how many times does a guy yeah. actually even get a chance to hit probably three times three yeah. times three times yeah. in in how in hours like that's not enough play that's not enough action for me <laughs> i need more action yeah yeah and i yeah. think that's what was the problem that's definitely specific with, to baseball, with baseball sure. was there was just too much waiting and not enough action and i didn't have enough i need more um 
I yep. don't know. Stimulation. Well, Corey, what did you want? At yeah. that point, you're playing sports and everything. What did you, uh, what did you think you wanted to do? Be pro athlete or, or were you, I mean, was your head starting to get into career? So um, I'm, a significant moment in my life was uh, when I was playing high school baseball. I went to Venice High School. was when Ronald Reagan was shot. I, I significantly recall the assassination attempt. And I was fascinated by the Secret Service. And, and I thought the ability to wear a suit, uh, to, to have a pistol, uh, and to travel the country in some type of protective detail was something I would aspire to. Right. So as I went to uh, Sacramento State to continue my education, I, I was mentored by a Secret Service agent. And that was my plan. And then... Uh, upon graduating from college, he's like, hey, go back to Los Angeles and, and work for the LAPD for a few years, uh, get some police experience, and then we'll recruit you and bring you on. So I did that for two or three years, and he called me, and I'm like, you know what? I'm having such a great time down here. I, was, I started to do some TV commercials, and uh, I got involved in some other things, and uh, I was having such a great time. And then I had learned from some folks who were in the Secret Service that it wasn't all what it was cracked up to be, that only very few worked on presidential security details, that most people worked on counterfeit and treasury issues, that's because they're part of the Treasury Department. So I uh, ended up uh, spending 35 years in the LAPD. Right. Can, 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 can you believe that we're talking to someone on this podcast that spent 35 years in the LAPD? This has been a family friend of mine for a yeah, long time, but yeah. I'm just really excited to have you on the Learning Clues oh. podcast. And we have Tim here too. Um, I'm actually going to – I can't wait to send this to my, to my dad. Awesome, because this is such yeah. a cool. Little, I've known both well, you guys for like yeah. twenty five years. I know. I I remember yeah. you from yeah. such <laughs> such early days. Um, yeah. Two of the most colorful guys to the audience out there that I've ever met. <laughs> and even though I was a coach, and you may not think yeah. you're a good baseball player, you brought more color and joy and yeah. character to that baseball team. Wow. And those are the memories you walk away with. You don't traditionally walk away with. You walk. Those are the experiences, the memories that matter to me as yeah. I got older. Not that nine kids would go in the same direction. We had some very competitive teams because Pat's dad was the coach. Um, yeah. But uh, you guys were just so colorful and, 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 and so different, uh, and I love that. And it's not like you can really remember like winning or losing at yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Actually, yeah. my dad was undefeated. He won. Yeah, he won a yeah. lot. That was the crazy part about – that's the one thing I do remember is like – and I followed in his footsteps as far as being a controversial figure. I mean, you can't not end up like what you saw. You just – copy what is i mean he may have been trying to teach me one thing but i just all i saw was someone obsessed with winning and willing to do whatever it takes to win and he got yeah. kicked off evicted and i'm trying to take the good and leave the bad or yeah. or i don't know if you want to call it bad but i'm trying to lead with love and uh humility and he is super humble like but at the same time i think that if winning means everything, it, 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 you're almost worshiping the winning thing. I want to worship the process. You're also yeah. setting yourself up for sadness because you're not, no matter how hard you try, you're not winning all the time. So, so, when, so when he heard the whole learning to lose thing, him and Martha's first reaction to that, they were like confused. They were like losing, like. <laughs> but, but after starting to understand sure. what it really means, yeah. it, it's actually kind of like a design for like thinking a little bit differently so that when the losses come, you can just immediately exactly. recover from them and learn from them. It's a process redesigned to get back on your feet and to move forward. Yeah. 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 yeah I love that. I mean, and, what, go ahead. What were, well, so what are these early days in LAPD looking like for you as a, you know, a low guy on the totem pole? Um, um, 
Yeah, what is, what's that like? It was like? a struggle. Uh, uh, it was a struggle for me personally. I, uh, it was a time of aggressive law enforcement, of, of homicides and violence at, at, at uh, apocalyptic rates back in the, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. Right. Over a thousand homicides. There's crazy here. war on drugs crazy at the time. Crazy war on drugs. Very aggressive policing. Um, my style is more relationship-based. Yeah. Uh, uh, and so I, I, I very competitive inside the walls of the LAPD. The, the only way you'd promote or grow in the organization was if you had a, the, the number of statistics necessary, the number of arrests, the number of citations. Um, that so is, is that how somebody grows in law enforcement is like uh, their actual number of how many citations they've written up and and arrests they've made and things like that? Does so that's, that's an era that's, that's gone. So back yeah. in the late 80s, early 90s, everything was statistics driven because crime was so bad. Yeah. And the only way to measure your productivity or your effectiveness was on what you were doing when you went to work. Remember, taxpayers are paying you a decent salary to do something, not just drive around. And the goal was to drive crime down and drive yeah. traffic accidents down. How do you drive those things down? You, you, drive, you put people in jail. You, you make enforcement stops to try to recover weapons, to try to prevent future crimes. So the more uh, widgets you check or boxes you check, the more statistics that went up, the better chance you had to promote in the organization. Right. Um, very competitive. Remember, a lot of cops are ex-athletes. We have a locker room. We all share the same locker room. Men and women have different locker rooms, of course. And it, it was very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a lot of ego involved. Uh, it was very different than what has become today. Yeah. You took in, we had, at the time, you know, 70 to 100 officer-involved shootings a year. Today, we have 25 officer-involved right. shootings. We've switched this thing completely. Our, our homicide numbers have collapsed over the last 30 years. Wow. We had, uh, although we had a lot of homicides in 2020 because of the pandemic and other issues, prior to that, we were, we, were, we were shooting at 300 homicides a year or below, 244 to 250 in the city of Los Angeles. Yeah. So we had 11 to 1,200 when I started, and my last several years, we're, we're at 250 to 300. Crime has fallen off a cliff. But that's not the perspective. If you look at your device, you see what's going on throughout yeah. the country. So why has it gotten so much better, you think? I think because society has gotten better. I think society has learned. Uh, government has helped. But I think as a people, uh, we've, we've, we've leaned on the appropriate resources to help. And one could be education. One could be health. One could be uh, recreation. Um, one could be improved parenting. You, you look at what are the causal effects of crime and what you can do to stop it. And one incredible tool is, is technology. Yeah, I was going to say that the, you're less likely to get away with stuff these yeah. days. There I would is say. A, as That's got to be a Every factor. heartbeat is, is measured by a device. Uh, everywhere you go, there's a footprint. Um, mm -hmm. uh, any uh, savvy detective uh, can catch a crook. Um, no one commits a crime once and then, and then runs off and never commits a crime again. You, right. you know, you start committing one, two, and three, and four crimes out of need and desperation. You're just leaving a trail of evidence. Uh, the challenge has always been the prosecution and the criminal justice system yeah. to come back and realize, okay, what's the consequence that's appropriate here? Putting someone in jail is going to cost taxpayers a fortune versus putting someone in a health recovery program uh, like here at Graceland Ranch that will get somebody healthy so they do not commit these crimes moving forward, which is the ultimate goal. Right. Do you think that all, you know, you were saying it was kind of brutal police work and maybe even some ways that you guys were doing stuff that possibly even regret? I don't know. Of course, but you can look at the scandals we've yeah. gone through. Yeah. I mean, Tim, let's be honest. The LAPD has gone through 30 years of reform, yeah. 30 years of evolvement based yeah. on scandal. Right. You know, and I've been through and a part of all that to some yeah. degree. Um, and there's internal conflict and, and, and it has shown itself. But I will say the organization has gotten better uh, with yeah. every... Uh, year and with every evolution as the world has changed, I think in, if you look at the, the blueprint of policing in this country, I think LAPD has been uh, you know, one of the shining stars in, in reform and reexamining 
um, uh, we've paid a dear price for some of the mistakes that uh, a few of uh, police officers have made. Right. And then you, I, I got to think that you went through sort of one era that <clears throat> is kind of interesting, I think, to us is like the sort of NWA era when it was kind of like it was like the fuck the police era. Like all of a sudden now it was like a, almost a movement. Was that, yeah. was, were you kind of, did you go through that? So, uh, you know, the NWA era back in the 80s, the yeah. 90s? Absolutely. It was like yeah. when rap music kind of yeah. turned to get, you know, kind of used as a cultural movement, um, Correct. pop culture thing. Correct. And it was all based in Long Beach, South Central yeah. Los Angeles. And, yeah. and uh, those were the roots of, of the pop culture movement uh, re related to rap. Uh, and, and those artists, and as you know, that was all surrounded oftentimes by violence. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, um, sexism at times and, and the way they, uh, you know, displayed, uh, women and, and, and things of that nature. Uh, yeah, it was part of all that, uh, uh, in the early years. Um, do you think, I mean, do any sort of like any specific early sort of, um, failures on your end come to mind that like, that you ended up learning well, from or changed your perspective or, you know? Yeah. One thing is that, uh, Every day, uh, you have a choice to, to look up and look forward or to live in regret. And uh, my life has been a series of failures, a series of missteps. I have been on the that. mat more in my life from, from uh, uh, relationships to, uh, to issues at work with relationships to uh, trying to promote in the organization. Um, it's been very, very difficult. A, a good example was I was telling you I did commercials. I was in this movie Space Jam with Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. And we shot the movie at Blair Field, uh, Cal State uh, Long Beach, down that way uh, back in the 90s, early 90s. And there's a baseball scene. Uh, and they brought me in. I had done some baseball commercials at the time for uh, Miller Lite, Nike, uh, a couple other companies. And they brought me in to pitch to Michael Jordan. And, uh, and they had thousands of fans who were uh, stand-ins or whatever you call them. Um, extras. Uh, extras. Yeah. And so the, my, so they had, it was an Ivan Reitman production. It was a huge, uh, huge production. And so they had all these cameras around me on the pitcher's mound. Remember, I'm a police officer at the time and I'm moonlighting as this actor guy. Yeah. And I'm pitching to Michael Jordan and, uh, and I hadn't pitched in years. So I thought it'd be like a half an hour shot. I was going to pitch to Michael Jordan and the catcher is talking to Michael Jordan as he's hitting. And, uh, and now all of a sudden I'm pitching 20 minutes, 30 minutes and now I'm not throwing strikes anymore. Yeah. So, and now I'm like wild. Now I'm hitting Michael Jordan yeah. to the point that this, this crowd is booing me. <laughs> so now here I am a kid in my early 30s, late 20s. I'm like, oh my goodness, man. I am standing amongst failure at the biggest limelight right now. And now Ivan Reitman is screaming because we're losing light. And, uh, and I couldn't, they finally brought a stand-in in for Michael Jordan. Um, it took four days to get the shot, which is about a 60 to 90 second shot in the movie. But Damn. I mean... Uh, I was really standing in failure. Right. And I also remember to, to uh, recognize uh, the difficulty of this process. And, you know, what's the alternative? I have to work my way through. I have to fight my way out of the situation. They helped, obviously, by bringing in a, a stand-in. And then well, they moved some cameras around and made it happen. But um, my life has been an illustration of that. But it, uh, my resolve has been to, to get back on my feet, to try again. And, um, you know, I have a hashtag I use in a lot of my uh, nonsense called uh, die trying is that I continue to try even though I've been down. I have, I have stumbled in my career uh, regarding promotional exams. I've, I've uh, pissed the wrong people off that have thwarted my growth at times. I've been involved in um, internal affairs misconduct complaints against me, against me for many, many years where I was uh, in the, in the so-called LAPD penalty box, right. which is basically uh, you're accused of misconduct, you have a significant complaint uh, over your head. Uh, until we determine the truth or the outcome of this, you're unpromotable. 
and some of these complaints went on for years. So are now, you able to you tell know, us at what one of those was? Uh, yeah, sure. I remember I, I was dating a cheerleader, an NFL cheerleader, and um, she and we broke up. And uh, I remember uh, we broke up, and then she took my American Express card to Hawaii with her girlfriend and spent five thousand dollars on it. Man, yeah. I was a kid at the time. I was yeah. in my twenties. I'm broke. And I just had my first brand new American Express card. It was the green color. And I'm a young officer. And uh, yeah. she went there and spent the money. And then I took her to small claims court. And, uh, and, and I won. <laughs> I remember the judge yelling at me in the small claims court. How dare you bring this girl in here? And uh, he chewed me out in front of her. But in the end, he's like, I have to side with this guy. He has all the evidence. He has the bills. He has the card. It was all this money was spent in Hawaii. So immediately she filed an uh, internal affairs misconduct complaint alleging that I had stole something. And, uh, and I was working Hollywood Vice at the time, undercover. Uh, I was working undercover and in, in, working the Hollywood Vice unit. And I remember the difficulty of it because I got caught up in a, in a, a difficult situation with the investigator who seemed to have a personal uh, vendetta or had an angst against me. We just had conflict. And that's what happens. You have conflict and all of a sudden he slows the complaint down. I was due to promote. I didn't promote uh, for, many, for a long time, like 14 months. Um, and it turns your gut. It turns you sour. And... Uh, here, I thought I was doing the right thing by adjudicating this matter in court. Uh, she was supposed to uh, pay me the lump sum back, never got the money back. She started making payments, and then she defaulted on that. But uh, typical, and what the public doesn't understand, she used the internal affairs system to uh, strike back at me. Right. Because whether the complaint's frivolous or, or uh, true, um, we take all complaints. So they had a team of investigators spend upwards of a year investigating this. Uh, and in, in, in a year later, they come back and say, no, what, what a waste um, of money. You're at, uh, so that's the problem. The taxpayer spent a fortune in this, but remember, we hold ourselves true. We want to be right. of, of the upwards of integrity. We want to show the public that we're trustworthy. So, um, in the end, a year, year, 14 months, it comes back, uh, uh, totally clean. And the department tags me in the investigation for my lack of cooperation and my, and my uh, inability to be forthwith with the organization. But they had kind of prided in my personal life. They had, she had given them a bunch of personal letters I wrote. And I remember how shameful I felt during one of the interviews, the investigator, uh, the LAPD investigator, was reading these letters out loud on tape in the investigation room. Um, uh, a personal letter between like, me and a girl. This is crazy. Right. And I just remember how shameful I felt and how difficult it was. Uh, but I bounced also, back, you know, I didn't quit. I didn't give up. And, and, you know, I, I rose yeah, to just, find another day. Just kept your head yeah. high and yeah. charging on. It's knowing very that. difficult. It's very yeah. difficult. And there were multiple cases that, um, I remember, so I, I managed an estate once and someone alleged, uh, that I mismanaged the estate yeah. to my benefit. Well, that cost another year of an investigation. Right. Um, uh, and you know, often we turn on each other in the organization, uh, but, you know, like you guys, uh, you know, die trying, you know, so, le learning to lose. I've learned to lose and I yeah. learned to get back on my feet. What, what did she say you stole? A computer. Just rant, just lies. Yeah. She, my brother had given her a computer and she alleged that he stole it and that I knew about it or something of that nature. Mm. It was like 30 years ago. Um, but she used the power of the department to stall me in my career. Uh, yeah, know. when you're grabbing at straws to, you know, she had no power, so yeah. she's using everything she's got but, so i want to admit my loss in that i should have never taken a small claims court i should have just said you know what uh mm. i intentionally let her use my american express card to go to hawaii i yeah. didn't think she spent five or three thousand or five thousand dollars that's on me yeah and i was a kid at the time a little immature myself and, and i was so devastated that she did that that i wanted to uh 
not get even or to, to, to reacquire the debt. Yeah. I mean, $5,000 in 1991 or 94 is a lot of money. <clears throat> mm -hmm. so, um, had, so I need to take responsibility. And so you know what? Looking back, if I just walked away, none of that would have happened. I would have continued to rise in my career. I mean, right. I ended up doing so. Obviously, I, I finished as a commander, a high-ranking official. But uh, those were the early years of, of, of failure in my struggle. Yeah, uh, sometimes it's like you got to bite the pride, right? When like we've come across this before where it's like, so, you know, somebody owes you money or something. And you, sometimes you have to look at it like, you know what? Even though chasing them down, I can just like get, you know, they owe me $500 or whatever. It's worth $500 to just have them out of my life and things move on. Like it's honestly so like 5,000 is a lot. Yeah. If I only knew then what I know now, I, I should have walked away and kept my head up. I had some people around me influencing me that, hey, she just screwed you, man. You need to get right. And then uh, the judge validated my issues. And then, uh, and then she went right to the department to make this, this false allegation but and cause the pain. Don't you think I like to try to look at it as that like had to happen? Like, I feel like I don't want to ever regret anything and everything that happened in my life led me to where I am now. So if you could, whenever someone asks me, oh, if you could go back and change anything, I just, I, I, I wouldn't. It's like faith. Like another thing you say all the time is keep the faith. I do. Yeah. yeah. Pat, I agree 100%. I wouldn't change a thing in how I've arrived here in 2021 to this day. Uh, I've only been a better human being and I've learned from those mistakes. You know, when yeah. you're down on the mat, uh, uh, a report, a, a, someone once told me when someone looks you in the eyes and says, you're fired, I don't have any need for you. Get your stuff and go. You've got to suck it up, man. That, that's a gut check for you. So to have those experience in life, to have those failures in life, uh, it's a test of your character, character, character. It's a test of your will. It's a test of your, your desire to become a better human being as a result of that loss. And you have to live in that loss. You have to live in that failure. You have to live in that pain to get back to the road to, re to lead you to the promised land. It's a difficult road. You guys have been on it your whole life. I'm on that same road. The promised land may be Saturday night for a couple hours. There's no year-long promised land. It's a difficult path. But we all, we all stay on that path. Um, well, most of us uh, get back up and try. You got to keep trying. You got to keep going for it. Yeah. Well, how did, I mean, it seems like, <clears throat> I mean, commander has got to be, it's like one of the top titles. It seems like you kind of ended, you know, since uh, you're retiring, we'll call it ended your career, um, on about as, as close to as high as you can get or among the highest rankings. So uh, Correct. How, uh, so that's, I mean, we'll call that a win, right? Um, like win. how, how did, uh, like what was, what was the trick there? Obviously yeah. there's plenty of people that have been in the department as long as you, I'm sure longer. Um, and you kind of got to that top level. What do you think the so it was, secret yeah. sauce is there? So the secret sauce is die trying. You got to stay the course. You got to go through the difficult periods of your life and put one foot in front of the other. You have to have a plan of action and you have to, uh, um, go for it. And it, it was, uh, some things happened uh, in my career uh, regarding some complaints that went away. It allowed me uh, to go into a position where I became an investigator, actually, Tim. I ended yeah. up working for Internal Affairs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I ended up proving myself as an investigator. I ended up becoming a major case investigator and investigated some of the biggest cases at that time. And it put me in front of bosses in the organization who knew of my history and knew of my struggles. But because I was able to perform uh, uh, in front of them. Uh, I was able to be excellent. I, I had energy and enthusiasm and a desire to, to move forward. It just created opportunities 
Um, and those activities led to the outcomes, which I ended up making police sergeant. I performed uh, uh, well in various divisions, and as a result, it, it put me in a position to make police lieutenant. I, I worked Occupy LA, and I, and I was able to uh, work for a deputy chief uh, and manage some significant incidents. Um, and then that led to me making captain at Hollywood, which is an exposure, high-profile uh, yeah, me media division. That definitely looked like maybe one of the most fun <laughs> places to be because you were just, you know, you're part of red carpet events, big sort of like these Amen. big PR moments. Yeah. And it Amen. seemed like you were kind of seemed like from the outside that a big part of your job was like just be in the face, being friendly, <laughs> showing up. Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's it. Yeah. yeah. It, and so uh, a lot goes on inside the walls of a police station. Uh, a, a lot of things, a lot of good things, uh, a lot of challenges. But if the station is running itself sound, the responsibility of the police captain in a, in a command is to be the face of the LAPD in that community. Hollywood being Hollywood, you know, the Walk of Fame, uh, the premieres, uh, the cameras and all the media is focused in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. So I became that face. And, and it's something that I, I, I became comfortable with that seemed to be my niche my ability to reach across the aisle or to extend an olive branch. But I do want to recognize that uh, I spent years in South Los Angeles, with, which is what both you guys are well yeah. aware of, yeah. uh, in one of the most violent communities yeah. in all of the United States of America. I had 103 homicides in my two years there. Yeah, we did you one know. day of a ride along and we, we saw guns drawn. <laughs> Correct, yeah. yeah. It was an extremely, extremely dangerous, violent community with some, by the way, some very good people. It's a gang-driven, narcotics-driven community. South but, Central. South Central, but fantastic people live there who are trying every day to do good things but the challenge is because there's so much crime there that you put so much police there i had a station of 375 400 cops one of the largest stations in los angeles yeah i mean the people in the pacific palisades don't see a black and white up near the ocean in south la there's a black and white every couple of blocks turning the right. corners wow. it creates a sense of occupation and suppression it's right. not our intent necessarily but you have bodies down you have gang violence narcotics <sighs> violence you have robberies some of the most violent crime occurs in those sections of town and as taxpayers that's where you deploy taxpayers would expect that's that that is where you would deploy your police officers but that has a negative connotation because now you're stopping good people you're making mistakes because um, you're involved in so many activities what was your relationship to the gangs so uh, i thought uh, my personal relationship um was okay i mean uh the gang leaders uh we had uh the mayor has a thing called the oh go ahead pat i'm sorry the mayor has a program called the uh, Gang Reduction uh, Youth Development uh, Grid um, uh, Program, uh, which is uh, a great program, actually. They spend millions of dollars bringing um, uh, folks in who are uh, from gangs and who are older in life, who've gotten out of prison, who, who work with the gangs and work with the police to, have a, to forge a better relationship. The reality is that black-on-black -black gang I'm trying to crime, think like you've got to like try and communicate, like have the communicative relationship with them to get, get some inside... I don't know. Yeah, right. it's it's challenging. So so yes, in a sense, there's so many turf wars and, and drug battles and and, and and turf wars going on there. Um, that that was the goal. You know, uh, it was the goal to get to the leaders in the community to try to get to the gang leaders uh, or try to talk to gang members themselves. You know, it's uh, they had issues with the police when they weren't respected, um, but by and large, they knew that the police were there to keep their families safe if their families yeah. weren't in gangs. So yeah. uh, it just it it was extremely challenging. I'll just say that. Right. And you're trying to protect the family, but like <clears throat> um, gang wars themselves, do you almost like 
sit back and let those just kind of take their course or is it do you um never you try okay. to be preventative right I mean, the goal is to be preventative to have officers in place to have visible people in place to have the clergy to have uh um, other leaders in the community educators in the community to have the, the, the gang officials in we have a summer night lights program you try to do all this thing to prevent but as you know one one murder in one neighborhood three blocks away will cause that retaliation to happen fast right um, and sometimes it's it's so hard to put uh, a bandage on it because it's so rapid and so you try to get a hold of those leaders to get into the community if they're not listening to the police to stop the violence so you try to get ahead of it unfortunately in 2020 we didn't. I mean, violence, it was very, extremely violent in 2020 in, in South Los Angeles. Can, can I just kind of mention something about that? There's this clip of you taking a knee in front of uh, the protesters. And I, I just, I think like at that time you have like, it was sort of like uh, protesters versus police or right versus left. And when you went in there and you were like, you basically joined them like where they were at. And that was sort of a show of humility, like maybe white flag. Like that's kind of the whole thing. That's the whole thing that, that yeah. we're doing here. And yeah. uh, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that. So uh, there was a time, uh, a large, so we had a lot of violence in Los Angeles. We had significant unrest and chaos and crime. During the BLM yes, movement. Yes, in, in late May, early just June. Just about a year ago, even yeah, less, maybe. Correct. It's all over the news. Uh, it was a very difficult Saturday in Los Angeles. A couple of days later, uh, a large crowd had gathered again. There were multiple protests. But I mean, you, you were out there, Tim. Tim got yeah. a photo of like a fire. Like he got yeah. this crazy photo of like, it was kind of like they were it was, rioting. It was, that fucking... it was that first day when yeah. everybody kind of, I'm like, I think this is going to turn into rioting. I'm like, I kind of want to go down there and document it. We were sitting in my friend's jacuzzi. I'm like, history's happening right yeah. now. Let's just go yeah. down there. And then we got to Fairfax and it was when, it's, you know, windows yeah. were shattering. All the bricks were flying yeah. through windows, <laughs> fires in the street. Yeah. And then the, the police flanked us. In. They tried to trap everybody in. And started firing rubber bullets, and so we I was running. You could there's a video of me running, and shots were being fired in our direction. You know, rubber bullets. But so I was there uh, and leading that effort. Um, that was a, one of the most darkest days in my uh, career. It's very difficult. Wow. Um, uh, there were thousands and thousands of good people there. Yeah. There were some people there that were hell bent on destruction and damage, and the good people, when they were told time and time again to please leave, so we could stop this right. vandalism and looting, they didn't leave. So therefore, the rubber bullets were deployed. Uh, and there's still investigations going. Uh, it right. was a very difficult day. A couple of days later, a large group had gathered, probably five to 10,000 again, up on Sunset Boulevard. Um, and I had hundreds of officers deployed. I had uh, uh, Metropolitan Division assets. Um, I had jail buses. Uh, I probably had 300 officers, mobile field forces, um, uh, tactical support element teams. Uh, it, I thought we were gonna have another uh, chaotic night with violence. And as a last resort, I thought, you know what? Uh, I talked to one of the captains there. I'm like, you know, let me go in and talk to this group. And he's like, you're crazy, man. You, you can't go talk to these folks. They're going to kill you. I'm like, no, nah, I don't think so, man. I said, you know, <laughs> let me give this a shot. You know, lead, I know my heart. Lead with love. Yeah. Yeah. I know my heart and I know my reasonableness, but I'm like, at the same time, if it doesn't go well, yeah. get me the hell out of this group. <laughs> <laughs> Pull me out quick. And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, I went in there and, and I tried to, um, to, as Pat said, to, uh, to be a, a leader of solidarity, to, have, to speak of unity. Uh, to acknowledge the murder of George Floyd in Minnesota. Um, and as a result, they asked, what it, as a symbol of peace for that evening, 
uh, would I take a knee uh, out of respect for their cause? And I said, if you will not uh, engage in any violence and, and, and damage the properties that are here, if, if you will not uh, uh, hurt any police officers that may have to come out here to, uh, to deal with this issue, they said, absolutely, no issue at all. You take a knee, we're good. We'll leave within an hour. I mean, there's five to 10,000 people there. And, you know, by the grace of God, as I started to speak, there were a couple of hecklers, but quickly they were shouted down by some of the informal leaders in the group. And, and I acknowledged by taking a knee um, um, uh, their pain and, and to try to do so in, in a level of solidarity and unity in a peacekeeping effort, uh, knowing my officers would not be harmed or have to even come out from around the corner. We had, we're, like I said, there was hundreds uh, ready to go. And uh, it just worked. It was a magical moment uh, in the city's history. Uh, there was no violence. Uh, and the officers did not have to deploy uh, on a skirmish line. They didn't have to have helmets on or put batons on their, uh, in their waist. Um, and the crowd was very grateful. I, was, I ended up getting acknowledgement from all uh, worldwide attention. And yeah, the media covered it, yeah, it was a, which was a big deal. Largely covered media event. Um, and that's my responsibility. Remember, I represent the city of Los Angeles as a peacekeeper. Many of the police officers had issues with it. They saw me as... Uh, um, uh, doing something they did not wish that I had done, uh, but I know where my heart is. I know that I'm a peacekeeper first, uh, and it was appropriate. So their issues were that you were kind of uh, joining the other side. Correct, and those are some of the cultural issues. Now, hey, many police yeah. officers were, were glad I did it, didn't have to go out there and stand on a skirmish line or have to deal with the uh, work through the crowd for three or four hours. But many were very pleased quietly, but there was many who have since made complaints against me again through internal affairs. But um, we, we just, we have to start seeing humans as humans. Like we're all one species and we have different ideas of how to get, I think what is really the same thing. We all like want the same thing, and then we attach our egos to our position. And then I, I think what you did was, it's like we have to try to meet in the middle. Yeah. And you kind of did that because you were able to put your ego aside. And mm -hmm. yeah. For that evening, for that time, it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, we achieved peace. The group was extremely grateful. I think the group saw my heart. As I said, I said, you know, listen to my heart. Don't look at my badge. Let me speak on behalf of the city that we are all in this together. That's right. Uh, and it was, so a, it right. was, a, it was a, a, a good moment. And it's, it's hard to speak to like a, a mob or a group because it's like <laughs> most people as an individual, you can have some sort of breakthrough. But like when people get into a mob, it's like a whole new sort of mentality and morals come into play. So Saturday, you're right. So there's an academic term. The mob mentality is right. just not some street term. It, it comes from academics. There's an elixir of ingredients that get into a good person's mind that they will end up doing things they normally would not do yeah. based on what's happening uh, environmentally around them. Um, and that's what happened Saturday. You had really good people who got engaged in activities uh, that they normally, I don't think, would not do. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's I, even crazy. Like the, the thought passed my mind and half of my friends own stores on Fairfax and stuff. Yeah. And like, you see people running out with like a cause statue, which is super valuable <laughs> and like shoes. And even that crosses my mind, like, damn, it'd kind of be dope to get one of those things. <laughs> but like, obviously I'm not going there, but like yeah. the fact that it could even cross my mind and I consider yeah. myself pretty yeah. morally. But I think the same, it goes both ways. Like you saw the mob turn to love. Yeah, like, yeah. I think it is possible to uh, it's just an it's just all it is is an amplified whatever the feeling is gets amplified so if we can amplify the love which is what you did that day you start to see everyone sort of changes and influences each other to do like what we're doing here we're basically taking a bunch of lying cheating 
drug addicts and changing the whole thing. And now they're like using all those same traits to, to, to help each other. And I think that, yeah, like I don't necessarily think that a mob mentality needs to be like a negative thing. If, 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 if the mob is, is there for a good purpose, it could go like the other way. So remember when you were there, Tim, Saturday, the world was had reached a breaking point. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States had reached a breaking point. There had been violent protests throughout the country uh, based on what happened in Minnesota. And I think that was the breaking point uh, Friday and, and mostly Saturday in Los Angeles. And come Monday, I think there was a sense that, hey, we need to fix this quickly. We cannot keep coming back to this violent message every day. And it was just not me uh, trying to engage with the crowd uh, as in a peacekeeping effort. It was the crowd understanding as well. We don't want to go back to violence again. Yeah. And another point is that as much as you feel like, hey, it would be great to get a dope pair of shoes, my, my, my perception is like, man, someone owns that store. And, yeah. and there's not a lot of profit in shoes or in a lot of things we do, and they're busting their ass. And, and, and to, to repaint a store, to fix a broken glass window, and to, to recover from the loss of property. Now, granted, it's only property. It's not people. Uh, my heart breaks for them because they're the ones who are legitimately paying taxes that are working seven days a week to try to sustain a living for their family uh, uh, through but a reasonable economy. The justification is that the insurance will just handle it. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I, I think yeah, that people yeah. think that yeah, for the sure. system yeah, is just yeah. going to take care of it and fuck yeah. the system. But I, so I was that's a, I was yeah. hearing insurance wasn't yeah. covered. Like yeah. uh, there was a. It's, I'm just saying that's how yeah. people yeah. make hey, it. It's just, okay. it's just a pair of sneakers. I, I get that. It's just a pair of shoes. But um, there's a lot more behind that pair of sneakers. Yeah. That's someone's livelihood. And to 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 refill that store with with inventory to get insurance claims and you know glasses a window glass costs what two or three thousand dollars a sheet in these stores. So um, to see restaurants shut down, you know Melrose Mac allegedly had seven or four to seven million dollars in, in equipment taking and that's people's equipment who was who that was in for repair the apple oh, store yeah, the apple store oh that's so, brutal so i mean and, memory, and the crazy huh? thing is that there's so much evidence because people seem to want to film each other committing these crimes i know that's and so there's been hundreds of arrests of that's people. the funniest thing about the yeah. capital <laughs> the capital takeover it's like you know. do you think that people are inherently good yes I or, think or bad. I, from my heart, hey, I'm an optimist. I, yeah. I do believe that people generally want to be good. I do too. Yeah. You generally, know? yes. I but think we have time, to see it that way. Yeah. I think generally, yeah. But there's a lot of disadvantage. A lot of people who, don't yeah. Have I just, I feel have. like, it, there, I feel like there. This is kind of the. It's like however you see it is what it will be. Correct. Like, well, like so, a self-fulfilling you, prophecy. Yeah, yeah. and well, if like, we all try to see it. My my sponsor in in Michaelis, he lives in Bali, and he's like, you can you can believe there's two different like things you can choose to believe. They're both kind of like lies because we don't really know for sure. But why believe? Like Tim said the other day, he's like, I'm an eternal optimist. I don't think the world is out to fuck me. It never really has been. But there are so many people that think that way, and as long as they're thinking that way, I don't know. Things just kind of end up becoming that way so if you're choosing to believe one of two things why not believe like i go through this struggle every day where i'm like are we gonna fill the beds and then i i I have a choice to either think yes danielle's amazing she's gonna fill all these fucking beds and there's gonna be a waiting list and that is what's gonna happen and on a bad day i'm thinking all the opposite of that why believe the bad lie when you can believe the good lie 
Well, if you think with negativity, a, a negative stream will develop and overtake you mentally where you yeah. will live in cynicism and negativity and never work your way out of it. Um, to choose optimism, to choose faith, to choose hope, and to choose love is the appropriate path, but having the balance to realize that, hey, things are difficult and we have to work our way out of things. But uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and those who... Uh, <laughs> Uh, those who choose the momentum of life, the optimism of life, and can work through struggle and, and can work through pain um, will get back up and see a better day for themselves. Those who live in the swallows of cynicism and negativity and who are struggling legitimately, those are the ones we need to rally around. One thing I love about Graceland Ranch is you are your brother's and sister's keeper. I think you treat everybody here like you expect to be treated. Um, so you have some principal fundamental uh, faith facts that allow uh, optimism here and, and of hope that you don't denigrate uh, or disrespect anybody on this property. And that's the expectations you set because you have a self-management skill set that values those beliefs and you try to live to that based on your experiences in life and your struggles in life. And the reality is like you said earlier, Pat, you're only a better human being based on your struggles, your path. And to have had those failures and overcome those failures, although we wish they may not have occurred, has made you a better Patrick Ridge today and a better Tim Carhart. The only way I can live that way, it, Tim might be able to, okay, he's not an alcoholic, whatever, he, for, for whatever reason he is the way he is, but the only way I'm able to think that way is through the faith thing. Yeah. And also the learning to lose thing and the process, like understanding that this is just a process. And if I can find joy in the process, then it's not even about how many beds are full. It's about the people that are actually here and, 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 staying detached from like the results or the, the future that I'm choosing to believe the lie that like anytime I'm projecting into the future, I'm just playing out scenarios that are not real. So really that's correct. Another yeah. version of believing the lie, which is actually what alcoholism mm -hmm. is. It's this mental obsession <laughs> of believing that I can drink and use like a normal person, even though I've been shown time and time again, I can't, I'll also choose to believe the lie whatever lie my mind is telling me about the future. But the truth is, is like we're, this is the only thing that's real is this moment right now. And the faith thing is the hard part for Tim. It's very difficult. Tim doesn't have a God that he believes in. I don't know that he needs one, but for the people who do like me, I choose to believe that lie or that positive thing just because it helps me in my life. Uh, for, I think I have a, I have a faith. Uh, there's a version of a God. It's, it's so hard. It's harder for me to pinpoint what that is. I can't like, either, bro. The, the feeling, there's the feeling of the connectivity of the energy that is connecting us. That that's real. It's like, well, even logically speaking, it's that's real. the God. That's yeah. one of the main ways that I define God is God exists in our connections to other human beings. And right now God is present. Um, I don't, I can't really explain it either. Yeah. That's why we read Emmett Fox's Sermon on the Mount because Emmett Fox broke down Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in kind of a literal way so that we can understand what blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Mm -hmm. What does that actually mean? Because if I read that from the Bible, I'm like, well, is meek a good thing? Um, and what does he mean by inherit the earth? You know, and, and what that actually means is meekness only, all meekness is, is that 
we understand that I, the, the will of God for us is beyond anything we could have ever come up with. So when we're experiencing these losses, we just can't see why it's happening, but, but having faith that we know it's the best thing for us based on God's design or whatever, that's meekness. It's like getting out of the way and having enough humility to just like let it happen. I don't need to be trying to control everything because I know God has a bigger plan. And inheriting the earth means that we're going to have a life, an inner life beyond our wildest dreams. Like I think earth represents like our body and our life, you know? So it doesn't really mean we're going to go to heaven. Although some people may choose to believe that Emmett Fox is explaining all these things in like a, I guess, scientific or literal way, because there's a reason it's the best selling book of all time. That's it's beautiful. Not, it's not because someone like tricked us and pulled the wool over our <laughs> eyes. Like this archetype of Jesus is like the ultimate loss, the ultimate surrender, the ultimate form of forgiveness while people are throwing rocks at his head. He's literally saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. And if we can take that into our life, I, I've, from my experience, it's always been the best. Like you did that to a certain degree when you took that knee. It was like, look, I'm going to sort of for, try to be empathetic and forgiving and bring the love. And that's. But a lot of that actions come from my faith filled life. Right? right. That I am a follower of Jesus Christ and that Jesus is my savior and that I am. Uh, I try to live a life principally based on, uh, on the Bible and my actions Danielle's are over there, like yeah. cheering Danielle's yeah. So like, yeah, sorry. My actions are as a result yeah. of how I was raised as a child and, and how I try to practice my life, knowing that I'm a sinner and I make mistakes every day. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, uh, my response and how I live my daily life, including that event is, is based on, uh, fundamentally how I feel in my heart based on the heart that was molded in, in my faith. So you just said yeah. something that I just, I have to, just really touch touch on real quick so based on the fact that you're a sinner so we make mistakes and we have flaws the problem and that's why this learning to lose thing is so profound because i think a lot of people they make mistakes and they fail and they they can't recover from it. The shame is so great that it causes them to, to sort of give up and continue to go down that, that wrong path. I mean, any, you know, you know, serial killer or, or thief or person that's just in the wrong, going down the wrong path. It, I think it's because they have so much shame and they can't forgive themselves. So they just sort of give up. I think so being able to make those mistakes and be like, okay, I'm not the mistake I made. Does that make uh, yeah, sense? To like, a degree it does. But remember, there are some very evil, uh, malicious, uh, criminal-minded uh, folks intent on hurting others. But, but I think but, that they go got to that point because they weren't able to accept and embrace a mistake or a flaw as just that. And that they still, there's still goodness and there's still hope for recovery in them. And I think sometimes that has to do with the parenting and bad parenting and shame based parenting. And I, I don't know, like, I think if we can just learn from our mistakes and grow from them rather than continuing to go down that bad path of like shame and, and, and failure and, and that negative thought life. Um, I mean, I, I, so basically what you're saying is some people are, 
born evil? Well, I don't know if they're born evil, but in, in most of the people that are, when we do the studies, uh, you see the, the deprivation they have as children by lack of having two parents, exactly. by lack of having a, a functional household, yeah. so by lack of love. So there's nurse, a lot of ingredients. Nurture is obviously yeah. probably so the may, heaviest maybe they're, part. Maybe they're beyond the point of no return. Yeah. Sometimes. Some. Yeah, but how often do you see people go to prison and come out evangelical where they find, they, they have right. the time to find their faith, to find hope and promise, and then they come out and they start trying to teach others to prevent those individuals I'm making the mistakes they made, so um, it's a complex issue. But uh, you know, there's a lot of art, uh, reasonable reasons for uh, the, why this is happening. One thing I wanted to ask, just to, it's kind of different than the if emotional you just side. don't touch the mic anymore because right. every time you touch the mic, it's like, <laughs> dude, I'm you know I'm new to this. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it's okay. Just I'm just letting you know. Um, I wanted to ask something just because you're on the inside there. Just you know, with, with the whole with the day of the writing and everything. There was all the conspiracies about, I guess, Antifa and like bricks being like put out for people and things like that. I'm just wondering your personal opinion on the great question, or, so, like all that sort of like um, conspiracy yeah. theory stuff. So, uh, uh, what I think I've learned by seeing that I always say 99% of all people at a protest are good American people who yeah. want to express their fundamental right to protest government, a form of government, including the police. Oftentimes you have groups that will then hijack a good crowd for their own causes. Right. Um, and maybe uh, we saw two groups, Antifa and BLM, um, uh, engaged in, in, in different uh, responses in a group setting that had you know, uh, people who, who were with their, their families and their kids trying to expose them to American uh, so education. So it's maybe. Uh, so, uh, so to some degree, I think factually, you look at some of the studies that people they've pulled out of these protests and, and have identified what groups they associate with. Um, that doesn't mean all BLM, BLM folks are criminals by any means. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have, they have an agenda. Uh, there was, they protested. Uh, uh, there was a violent group, Antifa. Uh, if you saw the Antifa group, they're knowingly violent. The ones that were detained or arrested. What does um, that stand for again? Uh, you know, I don't even have any idea. So what does Antifa uh, stand for? Oh, anti-fascism. Anti-fascism. So, um, so you do have a so Wickham. So, thanks, Wickham. So often you do have uh, <laughs> in violent protest, you have a, a good group that starts out uh, doing the intentful correct thing, and then you have a group that is so hell bent on destruction that they'll hijack a good protest. Yeah. And I think that happened throughout the week. And and obviously, yeah, there's people around yeah. this country who found yeah. such anger and pain uh, in what's happening uh, regarding uh, police community relations, no, uh, and they took to violence. Yeah. But like literally people were saying, you know, there was a lot of the, the big thing that was going around were like the strategic placement of pallets of bricks and things like that. So do you think, or do you, I have no knowledge like, of that. Yeah. I was, I was part of the intelligence process. Yeah. I was getting information uh, every, every uh, few minutes um, through uh, our intelligence team. Um, there was so much information going out, uh, some misinformation, but uh, traditionally, no, um, uh, without discussing our own tactics. Uh, I was never made aware the, if I was made aware, I never, I have no knowledge of factually having uh, pallets dropped off uh, that were used to hurt the police or to destroy businesses right. that I can recall at least. Um, yeah, I think we, most of the conspiracy, conspiracy theories are people just getting carried away and trying to look yeah. a well, lot I mean, of social look, media. But, but here's, an but this, I think there is one thing that, 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 that I think Mm, is probably true, which is that the BLM movement was hijacked. By I mean, Antifa? 
No, I think that the BLM movement started as something that was like cool and organic. And then like, it, it, I think it was taken over by yeah. like, you know, Hillary Clinton. It, it, it kind of well, always comes down. It, well, it comes Hillary Clinton? For lack of yeah. a better. Hey, well, it it, it just comes down to like the. <laughs> well, because they're the funding. Me, they're, the they're paying yeah. so much money from what I've heard. Um, oh, thanks. To you know through social media and to to have it become something that's that's not what it was intended to be well yeah the the media conglomerates uh they just make so much money off of hot ticket items like that yeah what they you know kind of what they say and then there's also this 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 you know thing that is being talked about they were distracting the public from the trial that she was on and i i have some people that i follow that i actually like trust and like um they, they they broke it down in a way that made like a lot of sense like the media outlets so uh hey in the end uh any movement <laughs> any group there has to be a discussion uh and i think yeah. one of the challenges sometimes with these groups is they don't want to sit down and hammer out a, a piece of court uh in a sense and uh and when a group doesn't want to talk and refuses to talk until government is overthrown or to their agenda is adopted um, sometimes that becomes unreasonable and, and there's challenges. And, and I think that's some of the things that have happened in this country. Uh, only when we get back to breaking bread, uh, when we get back to, uh, to figuring this thing out through, uh, through discussion, uh, through a, a recognition and understanding. Uh, there's a lot of controversial issues in this country right now, and we need to figure them all out. We have a new administration, and hopefully that'll bring new opportunities. And hopefully we'll find a way that we can coexist together. Because if we don't, we're going to continue to destroy an economy and destroy all of us as individuals, and no one will be able to prosper. What's the vibe in the police force right now? We kind of yeah. were talking about this last time I saw you. How you're like, morale is pretty terrible. It's pretty terrible. Yeah. Terrible. Like a lot of officers almost feel like abandoned, right, betrayed. Writing it. Yeah. You have a, it in. You have a. You have a, a politicians that have turned their backs on the police who have normally been uh, uh, in route step with the police. If you're an elected politician, you need the police to protect your community so you can win re-election and, and, and you can uh, show signs of success. Um, and our relationship with the political elected leaders of Los Angeles has traditionally been very good. However, there was such momentum uh, regarding the defund movement uh, that many of them uh, stepped aside, returned any uh, donating donatable funds that they were given for their elections, and the police feel betrayed by them. Uh, that includes the mayor of Los Angeles. Um, uh, people, you know, many of the officers feel the community has turned their back on them because the power right now uh, is not with the majority. There seems to be uh, other groups that have the platform right now, uh, which are casting stones at the police. Mm-hmm. And it just breaks the heart of, 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 of human beings who wear uh, uh, uniforms who try to come to work to serve the public every day. Right. These are issues much greater uh, than uh, a 22-year-old kid, a, a, a female police officer, trying to go out and help somebody during the day. Um, uh, the responsibilities and, and the burdens these young officers carry are insurmountable uh, based on the perceptions that are being cast upon them by uh, a media today. It, it just breaks my heart and it breaks their heart. You know, there's been an issue with the defund movement of taking monies away from the police department. Um, and I think we're all trying to, uh, to reestablish uh, the, the role of police in America. Yeah. And they're trying to reestablish their individual identity. A lot of them have had family members who have been in the protests. They've yeah. had people in their own families turn against them. I've had people who were close, close friends of mine turn against me. Or maybe just turn away from me, right. not turn against me. Um, and we're all trying to go through and, and deal with that. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, Pat would speak on this too. because We've been talking about it a lot lately. It's just like 
cancel culture has gotten so carried away. It <laughs> seems like it's like, uh, you know, I don't want to be an- non sympathetic to, you know, people that have been wronged, especially in sexual harassment areas and all that. But it's, it always seems like it, it starts in one thing and now you'd like almost, we start overcompensating and then you lean in. It's now become the sort of like guilty until proven innocent. And I don't know where the balance is there. I'm not going to claim that I do, but it's uh, the same thing with cops. You know, the police force. It's like now it's overcorrecting. Everybody's on the chopping block, and that's got to be kind of a hard thing. It's difficult because every community needs services, and that includes public safety. If there was an alternative that we didn't need policing in a community and we could save money, I think government leaders would be like, hey, this place is so safe. We don't yeah. need the cops. Let's give the money to schools. Let's, let's, let's give the money to Parks and Rec. Let's build better libraries. Let's build better roads. But our communities haven't proved or established a level of safety by policing themselves to, to move the police and the money's yeah. away from that. So, yeah. um, and now what we're doing is we're moving the police away from communities by reducing budgets, by eliminating police, and, and, uh, and crime is going up. Yeah. And the people within those communities can't control that level of crime. Right. And it's not outsiders going into those communities and committing crime. It's people within the own community yeah. committing that crime. So um, we're going backwards so fast. And if a community could police themselves, I'd be the first to say, you know what? We don't need the police in here. Let's give the money to the parks department. Let's give the money to the kids. Let's build some little leagues. But public safety is a significant issue. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, this is almost for like own selfish reasons but like um if somebody if you get pulled over what what do you think the best thing what's the best way to cooperate and like not get a ticket not get a ticket so like, uh <laughs> like what <laughs> so the first thing to do is is to cooperate uh, the reality is that um you know uh, police officers are trained observance regarding the vehicular violations um and no i don't like getting pulled over yeah. and, and the reality is if you do get pulled over the best thing i can tell you is to be respectful right. to to have a level of respect uh, for the officer the officer will be wearing a body worn and the officer 99.9 percent of the time will be respectful to you it's just a dialogue process that should evolve around respect and um, when the officer asks for the documentation related to who owns the vehicle and to your driver's license, I would gladly cooperate. At the same time, if you're trying to get out of a ticket, you have to ask him, officer, I'm trying to get out of this ticket. I deeply apologize for the infraction I committed. Um, are you feeling in a good mood today to give me a break? <laughs> yeah. The reality, if he's on a motorcycle, it's probably not going to happen because his intent is to enforce traffic. Right. If it's someone in a black and white whose uh, primary focus isn't necessarily traffic, you may have a shot. If you can get into their heart about, hey, I'm just going to a wedding or I have a family member, I'm going to the hospital, or, hey, my brother-in-law's an officer, yeah. give it a shot. If you have some humor, that would be great. Um, you just don't want to be intimidating or put the officer in a defensive position regarding safety because yeah. it's a very dangerous uh, incident. Uh, that's one of probably the most dangerous uh, things a police officer can do is to pull someone over on, on the side of the road. Um, and hope for the best. My wife and kids get tickets. You know, um, it, it's just a fact of life. And <laughs> the best way to, to, to deal with an officer is not get pulled over. Right. Um, you know, and, and the officer is recording everything. Everything is recorded today. Um, and, and, and so many of our complaints are being disproven now because before the cameras were on the officer's chest, it was their word against the officers. Now the camera is speaking volumes. There's cameras inside the black and whites. There's cameras on the officer's chest. Everything's being recorded. And, and, not, and most often the officer's actually right. Mm-hmm. I think surveillance or filming everything and honesty. I mean, you know, I, I, there's nothing I don't film. 
Correct. And there are a lot of people in my life who are like, oh, don't post that. Don't film this. I don't want people to see that. Just yesterday, he asked me not to post something. I don't give a fuck what you post, okay? Because if you're living a life without secrets and lies, which is yeah. the way everybody should be living, then what's the problem? Yeah. And I think surveillance in general, it might sound like, you know, Big Brother or National, like there's a lot of people that don't want that. But I believe it'll only be good. Well, I love your videos, Pat. I, I love when you're in a store and you're filming and the guy's like, hey, you got to go outside and do that. And I love you because you go right after the guy. Hey, this is a public store. Uh, but, you but, know? but I also, people also come after me. You're being yeah. mean to the guy. And I'm like, well, this yeah. was an interaction that happened. And yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I love the transparency. I'll say that. I, I just think that surveillance brings out the best or the worst in people. Because if I start filming someone... Uh, they're either going to become like, oh, they're love, like, oh, they have love and they have, they're not like afraid. It's almost like it, as soon as you do that, the person and what they're like, are they like secretive and fear-based that will show up or are they like inspired and love-based? And if you see it, like, it's yeah. almost like a, it brings out the angel or the demon within a person. Yeah, no, I get so that. So crazy. How about people yeah. say, you know what? You just didn't get the best of me today or they're deeply or they made a mistake and then you've captured that mistake and yeah. now the mistake is tagged and posted online when 99% of the time they're actually good people who fundamentally are flawed in that moment and yeah. there's no forgiveness opportunity because you've posted the ugliness of them and the grace and beauty of them will never be displayed because you're not there to 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 capture that. Yeah. And I can so I can see kind of they're like man this is you know you just didn't catch me in a good moment and yeah. um, for so, sure. you know I see that I see I well, see Well that, that that's where they have the opportunity to post whatever they want or just not. And yeah. that's the other thing is I think people like nobody knows who that person is. Correct. Yeah, that's true. It's just a yeah. person. Just and <laughs> everybody is so attached to this idea that they are the most important person in the world. <laughs> the truth is, is that like nobody yeah. cares. Yeah. You're not yeah. that important. I'm yeah. not even that yeah. important. I'm just like yeah. realizing the truth in that, yeah. like, fuck it. Like, who cares? Yeah. Like, let's just be, be all be a part of this social experiment of honesty, transparency. And like, you're not that important, dude. So true. My, my daughter has a saying called NBC. Nobody cares. And when she wants right. to emphasize it, she'll say, Hey, a NBC ain't nobody care. Yeah. And it's so true. It's like, everything is so quick and so uh, fast today that 30 seconds from now, nobody cares. Nobody. Yeah. Cares. I, I mean, I let it go, but even what you were just saying, we've, you know, he and I talk about, even because they're always filming all the time. And then usually when I pop into the, whatever storylines going on, it's usually has to do with like, it's the most interesting when I've like fucked up or like was super drunk somewhere <laughs> yeah, or something yeah. like that seems to be yeah. like the more entertaining thing. I'm like, doesn't give the whole pie, yeah. but you know, I mean, that's the other thing that sucks is that like people like the drama just gets more views. Well, it's like the news. Hey, no one wants to start the news with uh, a love story. They want to start with heartbreak and emotion. Yeah. You know what they say? If it bleeds, it leads. Right. And, and so that's yeah. what sells commercials, and that's what draws people yeah. in is are, are those situations. Yeah. So yeah, that's what brings news, you know. But, I mean, it's, it's definitely not true. Um, if you're in my life, you're um, – I've posted – I mean, the percentage is probably there's more dope shit, of, way more dope shit of you than there is bad stuff. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So, but, but in I'm your mind, I'm also not really fighting it most of the in time. In your mind, you th you're thinking 
you just literally said most of the time it's me doing some <laughs> dirt, but it's actually not. But that's the problem. We are always like, you know, one negative comment, 10 good ones. Yeah. We're thinking about the one negative one. Sure. And that's another like, well, that's isn't how life goes. You have everyone has thing. 50 great things going on every day in their life, and they're mm. gonna focus on the one thing that's not going on. I get the focus to try and improve that, to turn it into a positive, but if you spent time working on and, and, and finding the praise and valuation in the 99 things going on for you that day, or the 50 things, or the five things, or the three things that are going so well for you today, and you focus on that, you will naturally handle the one issue that's problematic for you. It goes back to your early conversation. You get so tunnel vision on the thing that's not going well that you create a negative momentum and that mm. cynicism that creates another thing not going well then you focus on that then there's five things and there's ten things when you started off having a beautiful day because you had four great things and that's why we have gratitude journals that's why when you get up you try to find out what's so beautiful about today the three or four things that are worth me having a great day today and to get out of that rut or that cynical mode and, and quite frankly the device in front of us has, is so full of cynicism and wants to sometimes drive you into that negative element um, that you have to fight it every day so uh, you know, for me, I try to have a list of the great things going on. And when, when something is not going right, I try to correct my mindset and say, hey, get, tell yourself right now, Corey, five things going well today. Yeah. Do you actually um, pers do you actually write stuff down? Uh, all the time. And my iPhone's on my notes. Right. Thousands and thousands of notes about uh, the goodness in my life, about the goals in my life, about the things I need to do. I'm a checklist guy. If I have 10 things to do today and I do seven, I'll give myself a good grade. Like, hey, I did some good quality things today. But uh, most of that is just trying to help others and help my kids, help my wife, help my neighbors uh, to be a good person. And, and a lot of ways to do that is by helping myself and, and having a good self-management skill set so I can push further down the road to be of service to others. And I think if we all had that mentality and we all were servants to others like at Graceland Ranch, what you guys are doing here is so beautiful. Um, if more people adopted that model and could sustain a model that you're trying to develop, I think we'd have a better world. Uh, but yeah, I'm a big believer in gratitude. I'm a big believer in the momentum of optimism um, to dilute the cynicism that we face. And, and, and in this society today in Los Angeles, there's a lot of cynicism out there, guys. Yeah. It always does. Whenever you are of service to somebody or you do something, you're helping somebody out, you end up happier. You, it, you, yep. it, always, it always seems to work out. To give the it's gift, hard to remember. but uh, To give the gift to others, a physical gift or the gift of love is the most rewarding thing. I mean, let me tell you, as a as a fifty seven year old guy, married twenty four years, to do something honorable uh, to your to your spouse or to your children, to see them grow, or to your neighbor, or to to even though I was employed by the city for thirty five years, to go to work to help to make mankind better, yeah. to serve is is a just the most gratifying thing you could ask for. So I just want to say one thing in in the spirit of that, and then we're we're gonna stop because we have dinner in twenty minutes. Um, uh, I've been in the music thing. And we did the production thing. Big things like music video. I mean, we've done some really cool stuff, yeah. right? And at Hypercrush, we were doing, you know, performing and signing autographs and kind of like, you know, a lot of people dream to, sure. to get a record deal and be able to do. What happened last night in this house was uh, more rewarding and, 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 and I get a feeling of, uh, fulfillment, Wickham. You should you should probably not have stopped filming. <laughs> that was about to be. This was about to be something really cool. Um, I'm basically comparing all the glitz and the glam sure. to something specific that happened in this house last night. I got a call. Um, there were some residents noticing one of the other residents' behavior, and they said she seems like she's high, and uh, she's on some medication that that 
you can get high off if you take more than what mm -hmm. you're prescribed. So I came here at 11.30. Me and Veronica had just sat down to watch The Sopranos. Like, literally, I'm sitting down. I haven't been able to do this with her from like, and I get this call and I'm like, at first I was like, oh, we'll, we'll deal with it tomorrow. Get, get some more ammunition, see if, she, we'll, see if she can get honest about it. But then Jason was like, no, we got to go there right now. And I'm like, you know what, you're right. So I came here and I just told her like, you have an opportunity to get honest. I finessed her a little bit. I said, we're here for you. Like, you know, let this, let it go, like get honest about it. And she started crying and she got honest about it. And um, the other people in the house were inspired with her ability to get honest about something that she's been That's lying awesome. about her whole fucking life. And it was just magical. It was like, this is the first, she's actually going to be addressing this monkey on her back. Like a breakthrough. Yeah, it was a breakthrough. Wow. that's And it was just like, that's what I am hungry for right now. Um, I also am really hungry to be creative and, and do a lot of other stuff as it relates to this house and Ridge production. But like that right there, like, I don't know. It's like, I really gets quick, me what, high. What, what was she doing? She was taking her medication in her hand and walking upstairs with it and saving it wow. so that the next day when she got it, she could take twice sure. the amount. Wow. So, and she just got honest about it. She changed her sobriety date and now, you know, we're going to be watching her and everyone else way more closely. But I think it was a good, I'm glad it happened because it got everyone in the house to see that you can get honest about something. And we're like, like the, uh, one of the people in the house, like told us, like they told on her. Like in jail and on the streets, yeah. you never tell on anyone. Sure. But in here, you might save someone's life. Sure. So yeah. it was cool. Like it's working. Yeah. That's so beautiful, Pat. You know, there's an Italian term called nuke cepi, N-U-N-C, and then C-E-P-I. It means now I begin again. Now I begin anew. Born again. And, uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and if you live your life with the mindset that everything you do, you begin anew with humility with character, with a value set and beliefs, you're always restarting your framework of your mindset. And, um, and I, I tried to, uh, to subscribe to that. Like now I begin again, it's a new handshake. And I walked in here again today, but it's a new beginning in a new relationship again. Yeah. And, and it, it keeps you back and it keeps you whole. And I think it keeps you healthy uh, moving forward. So for her, it's now she begins again. Yeah. And to have that breakthrough and have you guys reach out and, and <clears throat> develop an opportunity for him to, to her to get better, is is incredible yeah it was really cool and i don't even really i'm not i don't even want to really take credit for it it's like just god's working yeah, it's god's in well. all of our lives and i'm really grateful to yeah. my parents i mean they've they really are the ones that are could you imagine like martha trusting me i mean <laughs> back when i was filming yeah. her wedding with dreadlocks high on xanax i mean that's what it, that's who i was and yeah. now i'm like we're in this house and yeah. It's uh, cool. Miracles really yeah. can happen. Uh, thanks for coming out. You're an incredible yeah. story, Pat. Uh, yeah, you yeah. know how I feel about both of <laughs> you guys. I appreciate the opportunity to say hello. And uh, hey, uh, my respect and, and, and love for you guys is, is till the end, man. I just love what you're doing. And cool. for me at my age to sit around and, and see the pros success, the prosperity, and the steps you guys are Progress. making. Progress. You're just changing lives. And yeah. uh, you're game changers. And uh, I've always been thrilled. And uh, too often in my house, I hear the rich voice coming through my wife's iPhone. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm probably one of those Americans. Uh, my wife uh, and I follow Pat. And uh, in many rooms in our house, I hear Pat Rich <laughs> walking into that iPhone about something going on. And uh, there's always humor, some emotion. But I know in the end, there's just a lot of love. And so uh, 
Peace out to you guys, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, man.